0: quickly, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. So we are working our way through 1 Corinthians 15 as in the evening as in the morning we're we're working our way through um, a series on the resurrection. And so this allows to to really cover the issue on the one hand exegetically, 1 Corinthians 15, and also topically, which is what we're doing Sunday morning. And that way we can see how the Bible addresses this. But when we say the resurrection, what we have in mind is both his story and our story. The resurrection of Jesus on the one hand and our future resurrection on the other hand. And Paul helps put these two together for us in 1 Corinthians 15, which is why it's so helpful for us to do it. Let's read verses 20 to 28. Uh, if you'll stand with me, uh, in the reading of God's word. Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is, ex- he is accepted who puts all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. let so, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, every time we gather, we ask for the same thing. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, transform us by the gospel that we may become more like Jesus. Change our hearts, change our world, all for your glory. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. I want to read a news headline I came across um, at the end of last year, actually, the fall of 2022. Here's the headline. Vampire in Poland found buried with a sickle to prevent the rise of the dead. That's the story. That's everything. You're, you're intrigued, right? You can Google it if you want to look at it. Look at, but basically what it is, is archaeologists were, were digging a hole, because that's about all they do, and, and uh, they, they found a, a, a grave. And as they, 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 they dug through there and they got down to the grave, they discovered a woman who had been buried with a sharp sickle located right over her neck. And the reason was that there were concerns in that area over the years and a rise of concerns, particularly at that time. Again, this is, uh, I think it was the 17th century when this person was buried. A concern of vampires overtaking the community. And for whatever reason, they thought this person might be a vampire that when they bury her, she might rise from the dead and come back as a vampire. And we have found, particularly in this area of, of the world, uh, several graves like this that, that utilize a variety of means to prevent the dead from rising, uh, coming out of the grave, and um, haunting that community. Uh, some will, well, you can do your own research, but this was designed that if she were to rise, she would be decapitated and therefore be dead again. It's the only way to, to to stop the 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 vampire, I, I guess. I was reading that story, and although vampires have have made a, a comeback, and and vampires now are men who are hunks, right? That uh, we all fall in love with, like we 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 we've sanitized vampires, like the traditional myth of a vampire. Um, but 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 it is interesting, isn't it, that humans have a bizarre interest in Resurrection, resuscitation. Whether it be vampires or zombies that are huge in, in in pop culture, whatever it might be, we have this weird interest in it, a fear, if you will, that the dead might live again. But within Christianity, at the very root of our faith, is not the fear that the dead will rise, but the hope that the dead are going to rise. Not to haunt the living, but to live for an eternity. Paul transitions here in this passage from talking primarily about the resurrection of Jesus to talking about the resurrection of the believer. So, so just to break down what we've seen so far in this chapter, the first 11 verses is he, he affirms that the resurrection is true. And then we saw two weeks ago before Mother's Day, we saw that the resurrection is beneficial. We saw a number of, 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 of benefits of the resurrection. We have a Redeemer, we have hope, we have uh, assurance, things like that. Here, Paul shows, and this is really going to dominate the rest of the chapter, Paul shows us that because Christ's resurrection is true, because there are benefits, theological and pastoral benefits of the resurrection, then we can see that the resurrection is eschatological. That is, it regards our own resurrection in the end of days. The question, uh, question we have before us is, what does that look like? How does it work? When is it going to happen? Now, these are obviously not just theological questions. These are pastoral questions. Every funeral I've done, one of the questions that comes up is what happens to us when we die. Why is that such an important question? It brings comfort, hope, peace, and everything else. So let's start with the plan here in verses 20 to 23. Paul summarizes his entire argument, particularly up to this point, at least the first 11 verses there in verse 20. In fact, Christ has been risen from the dead. That's everything he does in the first 11 verses. In fact, Christ has risen from the dead. But I want you to notice that what we saw last time was Paul making this argument conditionally. If Christ has been risen, then this. Remember, we we had a logics lesson two weeks ago. Now, notice he goes from the conditional statement, if Christ, to the declarative statement, Christ has been raised from the dead. And because he has been raised, Paul describes him as the first fruits of the dead. Now, we have to summarize this. I can't spend as much time on I would like. But, but what he means by first fruits goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when, when, when you would harvest the crops, you would give the first fruits to God. The reason is because of thanksgiving and hope. Thanksgiving because God has blessed you with a harvest. The hope is God will bless you with more of the harvest. This is different the way we think as, 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 as rich Americans. So when they would give the harvest, go into the tiffel and give the harvest, they would never give out of their abundance, but really out of their faith. So they, you would give the first fruits with the implication there will be a second, a third, a fourth, and so on. So it's an act of faith. God, you have blessed our crops You get the first because I know this isn't the last. You have provided for us now. You will provide for us tomorrow. There will be more uh, crops. If you want to see this illustrated, look at the uh, story of Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice. Who is Isaac? He is the firstborn. He is the first fruit. Abraham and Sarah were fruitful and they multiplied in Isaac, the promised son. So when when Abraham offers his son his only son Genesis 22 says Abraham does so as a matter of faith because Hebrews tells us he believed that Isaac would return right he would be raised God would save him or that God would bless them with another child right so this is the principle so what Paul is saying here then is that Jesus is the first fruits Which means it isn't that Jesus was raised and God's like, man, that was a close one. He almost didn't make it. But rather in that Jesus is the first fruit offered to God, which implies a second, a third, a billion, whatever it might be. We are the beneficiaries of that. Christ is the first fruit. We are what follows. And he gives us a good theology here. Again, we we can't go into detail I would like, but I do want to highlight verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. Now, this is very Pauline language. Uh, Read Romans 5. I've got in my notes. We'll skip. But you can read Romans 5, verses 12 to 21 if you want to see this laid out more theologically. But here you have the idea of Jesus as the second Adam. Through a man, Adam, came death. He rebelled against God, him and his wife. As a result, you get death, destruction, decay, and the mess that we have in this world today. Likewise, through the second Adam, the true and better Adam, to cite Tim Keller who died the other day. What we have then is not one who brought death, but brings life. How did Jesus bring life? He entered into Sheol. He's an Old Testament word. He entered into the grave and conquered it. So through the first Adam came death. You can go the way of Adam. Or you can go the way of the second Adam. And that is the gift of life. And so because of that, verse 22, if we are in Christ, we will die as Adam died and as Christ died. But if we are in Christ, we will be raised as He was. Jesus is the firstfruits. The fact is Christ was risen. The hope is by faith, so shall we. And the main idea, of course, is given there in verse 23. Each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So what you have is the first resurrection, that of Christ. The second resurrection at the end of times, when we are raised to stand before God on the seat of judgments. Thus ushering in. The end of days. Notice at his coming. Now, let me just briefly mention we've mentioned this before. Paul does not have in mind here what is called soul sleep. Uh, I'm, I'm often surprised by how prevalent this idea is among Bible believing evangelicals. What we don't believe is we die and we rot in the ground until the resurrection, but rather there is a temporary separation of the body and soul. The soul goes to be with Jesus or the judgments. But our, we await the final resurrection to be united forever with our bodies. We hold to a bodily resurrection. Right? Much in the same way, there was a separation of Jesus' body and soul. Today you will be with me, not in the grave, he said to the thief of the cross, but in paradise today. Not a thousand years ago from now, not three thousand years from now, but today. So there is that temporary separation only for the body and soul to be re- United. Well, that is the plan. First Christ, then us. Here's the purpose in verses 24 to 28. Notice the, how it bridge in verse 24. Then comes the end. The resurrection at the end of days. Then comes the, the very end. He delivers the kingdom of God uh, to God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, every power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy he has destroyed is death. There's a lot here I want us to do. Let's see what we can do. One of the key words I want us to see here is rain and all. When we briefly deal with rain, rain implies monarchy. Paul here is developing the kingdom of God. And when the resurrection happens, the kingdom of God is finally and ultimately realized. What is part of the triumph of the king? The triumph of the kingdom. Well, you see there that all things... Are put under, is made subject to the fathers, put under his feet. Remember that in the ancient world kings would be up high, and under his feet would be everything under his rule, right? And, and so all things are under his feet. That is that all things have been defeated under his rule. Can I highlight three of those all things that you see in this text? Okay. The first is Satan. Satan, you, you see it there, Um I believe verse, at the end of verse 24, he destroys every rule, every authority, every power. Paul uses that language often to describe the demonic. And this is, by the way, the main storyline of the Bible because the Bible was written by people who believe, had a supernatural worldview. Even though we are Christians and we believe in the supernatural, often we, 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 we hide that under a basket, and sometimes we, we, we're we somewhat ashamed of how supernatural the Bible really is. The great conflict of the Bible is, is not my feelings. It's, it's, it's the, the supernatural world. That's the great conflict of the Bible. Can I just show you this uh, briefly in Scripture? It starts in Genesis 3 with the serpents. And, and the prophecy is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And we as the reader are looking for the fulfillment of that prophecy. Is it Cain? He's the firstborn. No, he looks like the serpent. Is it Abel? Oh no, Cain, the serpent one, killed him. must be Seth. Then we get Noah, right? And so we get the triumph of Noah over everyone. Judgment, yay, The, the promised seed has come only to discover that the serpent has bitten Noah at the end of the story. Is it Abraham? Is it Isaac? Is it Jacob? Is it Moses? Is it Joshua? Joshua, the one who is slaying giants in the promised land? Moses, who, who you may remember when, when he comes before Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh have on his, on his headset there? It is, it is a snake. And what is, what is the great miracle that Moses shows Pharaoh that he ain't messing around? His staff, an image of a shepherd, gets turned into a snake and consumes the vipers of Pharaoh. At which point he can grab it by his tail and it becomes a shepherd's staff again. The same staff. That will part the waters. The same staff that will purify the, 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 the bitter water. And that imagery is on purpose. What about later when, when um, uh, Saul, King Saul, he fights a guy. This is 1 Kings 11. He, he fights a guy by the name of King Nahash. Nahash literally means serpents. The same word used in Genesis 3. And Saul overcomes the serpent king. And, and the reader is thinking, is this the promised seed? But what do we find out about Saul? He's been bitten by that snake. Interestingly, however, David shows up. And there's two things that happens with David. The first is, the first real act of David, 1 Samuel 16, we did a whole thing of, of, of David. i got to move. Can, can we hang out for a few extra minutes, right? Um, because this is cool stuff to me. Um, is... The story of Goliath, he's a giant, so that theme throughout Bible climaxes in Goliath. But but there's serpentine language used to describe Goliath. For example, read the text. His armor is described as scaly, serpentine. The word bronze, he has a bronze helmet and a bronze shield and bronze armor. Bronze is used a thousand times in that text, it seems like. The word bronze, remember in Hebrew, there's no vowels. And so they, they, they play with their words. The word bronze has the same consonants as the word serpents. And what happens to your man, Goliath? He gets hit in the head, right, with, with a big old stone. And how does he fall? He falls flat on the earth in, in, in fulfillment of Genesis 3.14 that the dust of the earth will be your food and you will crawl on your belly. And what does David go and do? He Decapicates his head. He crushes the serpent's head. It's almost like the Bible was written by God. Later on in in, in 2 Samuel, uh, David fights a man by the name of King Hanun. King Hanun is the son of King Nahash. He is literally the seed of the serpent. And get this, when David sent some of his servants to to, to open up, I don't know, trade or whatever it is he's doing, um, Hanun responds by stripping the servants exposing them and bringing shame upon them. Can you think of a story that references the serpent, the seed of the serpent, and shame and nakedness? I can't. So what does David do? He doesn't send his servants. He actually clothes them like God does Adam, Adam and Eve. He goes and whoops up on the seed of the serpents. Goes and kills them. So this theme, it runs throughout the Bible. If we had time, we could look at the, uh, um, when the serpents come and bite the Israelites. What does Moses do? He puts the bronze serpent up, and Jesus picks up on that imagery, right? He says, much as if you looked up at the heel, you'll, you'll, you'll find healing. So too, like Moses' bronze servant, so too I, the Son of Man, will be lifted up for your salvation. And the poison of the snake is no more. Jesus engages this battle. Herod is like Pharaoh. He's tempted by Satan for 40 days to correspond 40 years with Israel. He cast out demons. Colossians 2.15 Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The rulers and authorities are not politicians, it is the serpent. So Christ has put all of them under his feet. Go to Revelation, what happens is the beast, the dragon, the false prophet, all of them are cast into the lake of fire. Secondly, sin. Not only do we have an external enemy in the serpent, we have an internal enemy. In our own flesh. The war stirs guilt, shame, fear, and doubt. And our solutions to war against the flesh always fall short. What we need is to be cleansed of sin. What we need is to be forgiven of sin. What we need is redemption, liberation, salvation. If you want to reference to this, Zechariah 3 is a great passage where... Joshua is, uh, is is covered, uh, the high priest is covered in excrement, and Satan is there to accuse him. One of the fangs of the serpent is accusation. And what does Jesus do is he washes him clean, puts a new robe, a new turban on his head, and declares him new. That's a picture of the gospel. Jesus puts sin under his feet. That is why there are no gates in heaven. It's because there is nothing to fear in heaven. Sin has forever been destroyed. The tree of life has been opened up to us yet again. The third enemy under his feet. I put here because it has to start with an S. Sleep. Satan, sin, sleep. We could do the devil, depravity, and death. Which one would you prefer? I chose sleep because you'll notice in this text and elsewhere in, in Corinthians, Paul uses the metaphor of sleep to describe death. We actually see the language there, don't we? Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we have this internal enemy, the flesh. We have the external enemy, the serpent. We also have an existential one. We live in constant threat of death. And everything we do is to avoid death. We talk about diets. We take vitamins, right, That is supposed to give us the iron and, and vitamin D, whatever it is that that, that, that we need. We, we go to the doctor. We spend an enormous amount of money on insurance for it not help us at all. And then we exercise. We, we, we do all these things, right, to to avoid death. You, you will turn on Dr. Oz if it's still on, if not Oprah, if she's still on, if not Dr. Phil, if he's still on. I don't know. And they're going to give you all kinds of advice. If you eat coffee, it's going to save you. Or, yeah, if you eat coffee, you're you shouldn't vote but if you drink coffee it'll save you if you drink coffee it'll kill you right i mean you're, eat bacon's going to best thing for you eat bacon you're going to die right it's all the stories are like that right um um, and uh, I'm sure next they'll tell us the sugar is good for us. But uh, nevertheless, we, 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 we fear death, and with death comes decay, destruction, suffering, violence, injustice. We are in perpetual need of healing, comfort, security, justice, all of this. And Christianity is unique in that it is rooted in the idea that death is nothing to fear, for it is a defeated foe, a wounded animal at best, but defeated nonetheless. That is why the missionary, I, I, I share with you, the pastor in Sierra Leone that uh, heard this yesterday, last night. It's why that makes sense. How come you can sing when you're being tortured almost to the point of death? You can sing because you do not fear death anymore. Christ is alive. One of the great lines coming from Tim Keller following his death is if Jesus is alive, everything's going to work out. Everything will work out. We get this in Revelation, the idea that death and the grave... Death in Hades in the Greek, death in Sheol, if it were Hebrew, will be cast into hell. Revelation 117, when I saw him, Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead. Notice, he's I feel like I'm dead. But then he d- describes the destruction of death. Fear not, he said, I am the first and the last, the living one, the living one. Notice reference to resurrection. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's the gospel. And I have the keys of death and the grave, death and Hades. That's the beginning of Revelation. The end of Revelation is the same thing. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, death and the grave, gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades, hell if you're in the King James, but I think it's more the idea of the grave, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the the lake of fire. We are given a second life. It is given a second death. And as a result, the eternal kingdom is realized. You, you see it there in verse, verse 24. Well, let's draw this to an end. We're already late. I came across a story of a man who died in 1893. And this man, by the name of Timothy Clark Smith, Dr. Timothy Clark Smith, he had a real fear, and I share this fear, but not to his level. He had a real fear of being buried alive. Now that, I don't like heights, but I'd rather stand on top of that tall building in Cincinnati that man and I did a few years ago. And I think I've told that story before. I wouldn't go to the edge. I'll stand like this saying, hurry up, take a picture. Let's go, right? Um, I'd rather do that than, than be buried alive. I mean, that, that is, ugh, gives you the hibbity gibbities. But he had a severe phobia of it. And so what he did was, when he died and they buried him, he, he, he requested that he be put in a shallow grave with a window at the top of his uh, top of his coffin, that he can look outside. And, and really so that if, if, he, if he does still live, people can look in and, and see that he's alive. Along with that, he had uh, a bell. So he can ring that bell to let people know he's alive. Now, I, I'm not much of a physicist, but... That better be one very loud bell that would make the now living man deaf, right? I mean, mean, of course, I'm deaf in one ear. I couldn't hear a bell if it was back in the choir room, okay? I mean, let alone in in the grave. He also had tools buried with him, tools that were designed to help him dig his way out of a grave. Now, I get it. I don't want to be buried alive. Part of me thinks, well, he's a practical man. He's a medical doctor. But we have a hope of surviving death. To him, it's a fear. To us, it's a hope. The good news is, however, when the trumpet is sounds, we'll see in coming weeks, 1 Corinthians 15, and Christ returns and calls us home. There will be a resurrection. We won't need a window to see it. And we won't need tools to be part of it. Christ, who is the first fruit, will make it happen when he puts all things under his feet. Let's pray and we'll we'll be dismissed. Father, I ask that you would be so.